what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Before entrepreneurship, there was retail. That's basically my career path in a nutshell. My retail jobs were pretty varied. A stint at CVS as a pharmacy technician, some time at Kohl's as a cashier and supervisor, a particularly mind-numbing engagement at a hotel jewelry shop, and finally, my five years at Borders Books of Music. When I started at Borders in 2004, I made 50 cents over minimum wage. When I got promoted to supervisor, I made a dollar over minimum wage. In both positions, I had to be careful to never exceed 40 hours of work per week, lest I earn time and a half for the overtime, a whole $12.75 per hour. Now, before too long, I was promoted to one of three salaried positions in the store. Now that I was the sales manager, I was earning a salary of $28,000 per year. That was in mid-2005. Relatively speaking, it was a big pay increase. But after paying my student loan bill and car payment, I didn't really have enough left over for rent, so I lived with my parents. It wasn't a big deal. I figured I'd get promoted again soon enough, and so I could earn enough to support myself. Holding a salaried position meant that I was no longer clocking in and out. In theory, I got paid to do a particular job, not to work a certain number of hours. But as the corporate office cut our payroll budget more and more, the three salaried managers were often the only people who could make up the slack. Within a year, our district manager expected to see us scheduled for 50 to 60 hours of work per week. My salary, which would have equaled about $13 per hour for 40 hours per week, was actually worth more like $9 per hour. I'd worked hard to get promoted, and now I was working harder than ever, earning pennies more than I was as an hourly employee. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Now, I was of two minds when it came to this compensation situation. On one hand, my job was decent, and at least I was making a steady income. I came to accept this as what life had to offer me. I was a depressed, burnt-out, wannabe academic with no job skills. What else was I going to do? On the other hand, I was pissed, frustrated, demoralized. I was angry for myself, and I was angry for all of my coworkers. This was no way to treat people. Was this really what corporate thought we were worth? Was our time so valueless? Were we so replaceable that they were perfectly fine running us into the ground because someone else would happily take a low-wage job in a fun, casual environment? I'd been working retail since I was 16 years old. But this was the first time I started to wake up to how my labor was viewed by those at the top. And I did not like it. But the work and my anger was exhausting. 
and it started to seem like, yes, this was exactly what I was worth. Not surprisingly, this influenced how I then saw the value of my time when I started working for myself. If I was making $28,000 per year before, then $40,000 per year would be awesome, right? If I was earning $13 per hour before, then earning $25 per hour would be amazing. The only way I knew how to calculate the value of my work was through my previous experience of selling my labor in units of time for a price I had no control over. I had to learn about value and pricing, but I also had a lot to unlearn. We're doing a lot more than just, you know, 45 minutes can can capture. I'm able to see for myself as a coach, like the compound results, whether my client's getting a $20,000 raise or now they can talk to their partner about money. And so I had to do like that mindset shift to see that it's not just about charging for my time. That's Keenan Newell, financial coach and founder of Wealth Over Now. You might remember Keena from my previous conversation with her about how shifting her mindset had led to some dramatic increases in her revenue from one-on-one coaching. So when I was planning the series on money and time, I knew I wanted to get her perspective. Very early on, I tried to equate time and money together. Right. So if I do an hour session and charge $50 or if I do an hour session and do $100, then that has to equate for, you know, the time that I'm going to spend together. But I've really pushed beyond this boundary of time because I do know in the I do 45 minute coaching calls in that 45 minutes. If we can get to like one thought that shifts the way that they view money, then I think that that expands beyond the time that they spend with me. So I work with clients for five months on this 45-minute call. So it's really, for me, about thinking about the results that they're going to create while we're in this container together and the compound results of being able to change their relationship with money continually after the five months that we work together. When I think about the journey of my business, in the beginning, I very much was charging in terms of If I'm going to be with a client for two and a half hours, how much is that worth? Like, how much is that worth to them? But I would say I was charging much more based off of the the client perception of like, what do they want to spend money on? And then it shifted, one, because um, I was working with a business coach I had at the time. Her name's Raina. And she helped me believe that I could charge $1,500 for a two-hour call. And of course, I'm doing the math of that. And like $750 per hour. <laughs> Who's paying $750 per hour? But I would say, right to your point, I was very much still in the like kind of corporate mindset of you can only be paid hourly. I had been able to shift to value. But then in the evolution of my business, it was really thinking about if I desire to move from this as like a side hustle to an actual thriving business that creates good in the world. And when I say good in the world, I'm thinking about being able to hire contractors, being able to move to hiring, you know, part-time, full-time employees. I knew that I would needed to set bigger revenue goals. And so in 2020, that looked like creating $100,000 in my business. In 2021, it was setting um, $250,000 as a revenue goal in my business. And then this year, my goal is to create $400,000 in my business. So both Kina and I have done some unlearning and no wonder. 
the history of wage work is long and sordid. The earliest form of wage work in Western Europe was the domestic system, or the putting out system, which was at its peak in the 17th century. In this system, merchants distributed raw materials to workers who created the end products in their homes or in small workshops. Once the end product was finished, the merchant picked it up and paid them for the work they did. This wasn't so much a time-for-money trade as it was more like a project fee. The 18th century saw the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Now workers were gathered up into shops and factories to work. Men earned more in factories than in fields, but they often labored 14 to 16 hours per day, six days per week, in dangerous conditions. Women earned less than half of what men earned. And children? Well, they earned even less and worked in the same conditions. Labor organizing started in the mid-19th century and won some concessions from the industrialists and bosses. But it wasn't until 1938, when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in the United States, that some workers were guaranteed a minimum wage and a 40-hour work week or overtime pay. Now, it's worth noting here that in order to pass the bill, proponents compromised, allowing workers in industries that predominantly employed Black people and immigrants to be excluded from these guarantees, setting up a legal structure of unequal compensation that persists to this day. Even with the relatively short history of wage work and the even shorter history of the modern construct of a job, the social conditioning of wage work runs deep. Not only are we conditioned to think about our time in terms of units of labor we can sell, we're conditioned to believe that this is natural, that there is no alternative. We're also taught that the ideal outcome for a worker is the Monday through Friday, nine to five office job. And so how many of us continue to use this structure long after we've set out on our own? In an employer-worker relationship, there is always unbalanced power. While the worker may be free to accept the demands of the job or not, since a job is required for survival for most workers, that freedom is an illusion. If the employer says you need to come in on Saturday, then you come in on Saturday. When we're working for ourselves, there's a sort of power vacuum if we don't empower ourselves to make decisions that are in our best interests as workers. It's why we keep replicating familiar systems and structures for work instead of making different decisions as we want or even need to. It might seem strange to talk about employer-worker relationship dynamics or wage work in the midst of a conversation about entrepreneurship. I'm, of course, not trying to equate the challenges of the low-wage working class or even the no-wage working class with the choices that we have as entrepreneurs and professionals. Yet the way I see it, today's micro-business owners have much more in common with the working class than they do the capitalist class. Okay, but aren't entrepreneurs and business owners capitalists? Kate Strathman and I tackled this question last year. We're really in the trenches where our labor is directly connected to the economic viability and engine of our businesses. So we work in our businesses. Our labor power is part of the commodity that is running through our businesses that makes value in the world. 
but but we're also owners. And, you know, in terms of what we're talking about and the kinds of people that you and I most often speak to, we're not in that ownership class that is sort of uh, a caricature of like deep evil and doom. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we're not trying to squeeze all the surplus value we can via like low wages exploitation and like trying to amass as much profit and money as we possibly can at the expense of others. Like, that's not what we're trying to do. And yet, we're still subject to the structures that we are building our businesses in and the messages. And the dominant forces of that are doing that because that is what the economics of our system does. It is an exploitative model. It is based on accumulation of wealth in individuals. And so I think it's just so confusing as a business owner that's really like deeply values doing good in the world and treating people well. The economic, political, and even moral systems we operate in perform best if we subdue our class consciousness and align ourselves with the powers that be. Which then leads to the reverse of the question I asked a minute ago. Can business owners be workers in a political sense? My argument is yes, that in fact, entrepreneurship as labor is a natural product of late-stage capitalism as others' profit motives have squeezed every ounce of sustainability from working-class jobs and even most professional jobs, the necessary response has been to seek out our own profit motives and exploit ourselves in the process. The kind of unlearning that Kina and I have been describing here is a way of making this reality visible. As Kina and I talked about how she sees the value of her own time and structures her work, she said that unlearning that wage work mentality has allowed her to formulate her true ideal week. One of the things I didn't want to do was move from working for someone else to just creating like where you have these like consistent 40, 60 hour week work weeks where you're overworked. So when I think about time, I think about like how many clients do I actually want to work with in order to generate this level of revenue. So you know, if you're going to sell $100 units to get to $400,000, like, how long is that going to take me? How am I going to, how am I going to feel? Is that how I desire to feel? My business coach that I'm currently working with, she runs a model, like when you're in one-to-one coaching, that generally speaking, if you can get to 20 clients that you're coaching in a week, it is going to support your growth as a coach because of your ability to see and solve problems a lot quicker. Um, So I borrowed that from her and also married that with like, what do I want my ideal week to look like? So how do I want to be spending my time from Monday through Friday? What do I want my coaching hours to be? Do I want to have hour long sessions or do I want to have 45 minute sessions? Ultimately, looking at it from a place of like, how do I want to feel at the end of the day? And thinking about like, am I energized by coaching or not energized by, you know, four clients versus five clients on a specific day? Luckily, I am happy to report that I could coach all day long (laughs) and feel really like I feel energized by coaching with clients. So my ideal week, my coaching days are Tuesday through Thursday. So I generally all I have is coaching there. I like to have Monday is like the days that I usually do consults and work on like the back end of my business. And I love Friday as 
being able to have the opportunity every other Friday to take off. And if I want to go get a massage in the middle of the day, I can go get a massage, go to lunch with friends, whatever that looks like. And being able to push the envelope on what I get to do with my time. All the times that I went to work at 6 a.m. in the morning and I saw somebody running outside, I'm like, I'm going to do that when I no longer have to work for someone else. Looking at my calendar where I'm thinking about, you know, I want to take a trip in May for no other reason than the fact that I desire to take a trip. And so if that's true, then what does what needs to be true for my time leading up until those moments? Kina is providing an excellent example of something that's been key to the way I think about building a business. Lots of people want to figure out what they're going to sell or who they're going to sell it to first. Some think about what business model they'll use or how they'll market the business. But the most effective way to start building a business is to focus on your own needs and the needs of anyone you're working with first. I think about designing a new business or redesigning an existing business as a math problem with a bunch of unknown variables. The only way to figure out the equation is to start assigning values to those variables. The variable I always start with is what a business owner is really trying to get out of their business. Money, sure, but if all you wanted was money, you could just work for someone else. For some, it's flexibility. For others, it's a balance of work with caregiving. For still others, it's intellectual curiosity, health, or a certain type of work. Once we've landed on the personal priorities that we'll use for that first variable, we can start solving for other variables like business model, product, marketing. Each of those variables is dependent on the value of the first, what you want out of this business. When you design a business by starting with your personal priorities, you end up with something much more cohesive and much less likely to put you on the path to burnout. So what I found to be true for myself is that when I worked for someone else, I thought about all the things I would do if I was in control of my time. But then when you are in control of your time, what are you actually doing? And being able to make sure that you're bringing the things you thought you would do and actually doing them. One of my business coaches, going back to Raina, again, she, she talked about this. I remember it, and I was still working full-time at the time I took her course. And I remember writing down like a dream list of like things that I would do, whether it's like I would go to CrossFit at six in the morning or right, like these things that sounded like they'd bring me joy and being able to actually put that in my day. Like I, I love to be able to end the day at 12 o'clock and call my friend and be like, hey, you want to go to happy hour or like this new lunch spot? Just being able to actually live the life that you say you desire. <laughs> I noticed that Kina used the word desire quite a bit. Desire is something that wage work hasn't really allowed us to focus on. We're trained to do what the company wants us to do rather than what we really want to do. Further, the consumer economy that's born from wage work has gotten really good at telling us what we want when we're not working. We operate in value systems that tell us what to care about and marketing systems that tell us what we desire. These systems provide clarity, a sense of certainty. And as we lean into that clarity, we start to lose track of our own values and desires. Recently, I heard the philosopher C.T. Nguyen use game design as a way of explaining this. He said that game designers, in providing a clear and certain environment, 
make sure that the point system, characters, abilities, and the environment of the game all fit together. They make sense together. Think Mario running ever rightward, collecting coins, and jumping over obstacles that perfectly fit Mario's capabilities. But the real world, to state the obvious, is not a game. We end up with a mismatch between the points system, the goal, our abilities, and the environment we operate in. So our desire, what we want, and why we want it is easily co-opted. Prioritizing what we desire is one way to radically change our relationship to work. Whether you want shorter working hours, a more flexible schedule, a different type of work, or a different relationship with your customers, when you think critically about what you want out of work as opposed to how you should be working, you can come up with some pretty creative ways to spend your working time. Now, it can be easy to think that knowing what you want is easy or should be easy, But like I said before, our conditioning runs deep. Figuring out what you want is always a push and pull between that conditioning and your true desire. Sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. So I asked Kina how she's learned to trust her desire. I think every time I do something that's outside of like the norm, societal norms, I put that in my trust bucket. And I would would say like a great example is when I think about my business, I want to have flexibility. That's important to me. And my neighbor, she had a baby in the beginning of December. And we're really close. We're like family than neighbors. And I came back from spending time with my family at Thanksgiving and the baby came early. So her husband had to work and it was like, here's this newborn baby plus our two other kids. And I was able to like clear my schedule off and block some times off to go have like newborn snuggles. But I I remember thinking like, Kina, you can do this. You don't have to worry about this week signing clients. You don't need to worry about like creating content or, or what like my normal work week would look like because you've had other experiences where you've been able to drop everything and like be present for the people in your life. And that's one of the results I wanted in creating a business for myself. And my brain definitely wanted to be like, but hold on, Kina, you had to like move some consults around. What if? And I'm like, no, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Um, And so I was able to really, like, like I said, clear my schedule, block off some times during the day, ask people, hey, can you move a call? And that went into like my bucket for myself to say, like, I can trust myself to take plan time off. I can trust myself if I have to do impromptu time off. Like, What I've built in my business is not exhaustive. Um, The results I've created in my business aren't, you know, exhaustive. Like, I want to be able to trust that clients are always there. My clients get what they need. And it's because when I'm present, I'm present. And I also want to nourish these other parts of my life. I think we, we oftentimes get stuck in like the one moment where something isn't going our way. And we forget to look at the things that are worth like celebrating that you've created. And so whenever I my brain wants to go somewhere else, I'm like, but hold on, let's look at what's really happening and let's look at the facts. I think something I've had to learn for myself is I may not be able to work for eight hours straight, which that's how, you know, corporate life is set up eight to five and you are expected to work, whatever that means. (laughs) But if you can get done what needs to be done in two hours, why do you need to stay on the clock for eight? And that's something societally we haven't challenged, right? Because like people want to be able to check boxes. 
And so I think that's what like I've had to undo in working for myself is like not feeling like I need to fill the entire day up. And if you are able to like be in nature or do things that rejuvenate you when you are in your business and spending quality time in your business, it's going to allow you to be in your zone of genius and potentially spend less time there so you have more time somewhere else. Wage work mentality impacts how we think about our own time in regards to money, but it also impacts how we think about other people's time. I've noticed that well-meaning, thoughtful business owners who are fierce advocates for working differently themselves often don't extend that same thoughtfulness to the people who work for them. This is, again, the result of our loss of solidarity with the worker as we play out the story of entrepreneurship and ownership. For every creative and self-caring decision we make in service of our desire, I think we owe it to others to consider how we can allow others the agency to make their own creative and self-caring decisions in service of their desire. Kina told me that she's already thinking about how she can create a workplace that does offer a different relationship to work for her future hires. It makes me want to like write a note to myself about when I hire employees, what type of condition will I create for them and how do I create an environment in which they get to do the things that excite them and they feel liberated and being able to have this amount of flexibility and more so be in alignment with those, I'm going to quote all the wrong organizations possibly, but like when I think about (laughs) when people talk about like working for like an REI, which I've heard has like a really great culture or just, you know, companies that you hear that like people have unlimited days off and thinking about like how have they actually created a system in which people are able to thrive in that ecosystem and not feeling like someone's watching over them and checking up on them all the time. My husband and I both worked in environments with this maxim. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean. That probably doesn't apply to your work. It doesn't apply to my work today. But most of us have some version of this that we whip out when we're not meeting some expectation of productivity. We can be so critical of others and ourselves when we believe that we could be using our time more wisely or productively. Time is money, can be used as a cudgel. If we're beating ourselves up about how we use our time, we're not doing anyone any favors. Another word that I use besides desire is awareness. (laughs) Like as a business owner, if I'm aware of that and I get to be in control of my time, then that's where I would like kind of leave off in terms of time. Time is money. Now I'm like undecided thing. Yes, time is money. (laughs) In the sense of like being an indecision, it makes me think about being an indecision where people aren't making decisions and the amount of time that they spend being an indecision, like what else are they not able to do and not in a harmful do, right? Like you were saying, like do more work. But if you weren't wasting mental space, which I would equate to time on whatever like indecision that you have, like if you're thinking about it from a business standpoint, when people are like talking about systems, you know, MailChimp, ActiveCampaign, just pick one. Right. Because at the end of the day, that one decision isn't the thing that is going to make or break your business. And you can also go back and change it. So it sounds like to sort of sum that up, I think, tell me if I'm wrong. 
any time spent in intention is valuable time. Yes. Okay. Any time spent in intention is valuable time. Like Elizabeth Jackson said, we don't have to put a price tag on our time for it to be worth something special. There's quite a bit of ambiguity in the relationship between time and money, between work and value. The moment we think we've got it nailed, something pops up that makes us question our thinking. You don't know what you should charge per hour, what the value of your offer is to your customer, or whether you should invest in something that's going to save you time. Trust me, you are not alone. I think the best thing we can do for ourselves is to avoid trying to come up with the quote-unquote right answer to what our time is worth or even what our offer is worth. And instead, cultivate awareness. What stories am I playing out when I think about this price? What power dynamics are at play that might influence how I perceive the value of my time? How have my previous experiences with money and time shaped the experience I'm having now. I really value the way Kina is always learning, paying attention, and creating the space to experiment, all within a very, very simple business model. She's created the exact conditions she's needed to bring awareness to these questions of time and money, and the results, well, they speak for themselves. Find out more about Kina Newell at wealthovernow.com or find her podcast, Money Files, wherever you listen to What Works. Next week, I'm going to explore incentives and gamification and how they teach us what to value as well as how they impact our time and money. If What Works is helping you think differently about time, money, and how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks, and that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafeld. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. <laughs>